Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week's episode comes to you from the Latitude Festival, where Jack Howard and I recently did an on-stage, having met for the first time in something like 18 months. We talked about our return to the cinema and the films that have really inspired us on the big screen. So sit back, take a front row seat for Jack Howard and me live at the Latitude Festival. This is what happens when you bring your child to a show. Um, and this is what happens when you bring your granddad out. Yeah, so in case you don't know this, so this is uh, Jack Howard. Hello. And this is Mr. Mark Kermode. Uh, Dr. Mark Kermode, I apologise. Yeah, thank you, Jack. Um, so the way this, this works is this is a, for a podcast that Jack and I do together. The podcast, crucially, is called Kermode on Film because Jack wasn't there when I started it. But now, obviously, he's just run away and taken everything over. And uh, this is Jack... Am I right? Is this your first... This is your first festival in a very long time? Well, I think it's everyone's first festival in a very long time. Yeah, no, but I mean... Don't make it seem like I'm the weird one. Yeah, but it's your first... Okay, say just from what... Are you a festival bunny? I'm not really. I'm, I'm, I'll put it politely. I'm a bit of a house cat. So the idea of like coming to a festival like this, I'm just like, oh, no, no I, just, I need to be comfy and cosy. Where am I going to sleep? The floor? No, I'm not into that. Um, so, but, yeah, like, I'm, I'm from Nottingham originally, and down the road... Really? I can't believe you got a <laughs> cheer for being from Nottingham. <laughs> well, you, you left, so yeah, fair enough. Um, but down the road from me is Download Festival, and because it was down the road from me, I'd always go, enjoy it, and then go home and be comfy in my bed, whereas everybody else would be sleeping in the mud, and I'd be like, what are you doing that for? Um, so no, I'm not really a big festival person. Are you, have you, do you enjoy a festival vibe? Well, this, I think this is now my fifth latitude... Uh, and it, you know, because it is, it is such a lovely fact. Honestly, everybody's thinking the same thing. Isn't it weird and wonderful to be able to be here at all? We walked in, we walked in last night. We, we turned up last night and, and, you know, got set up. And then we came in, and which is the, this is the most number of people I've been around. This is for everybody, for like a year and a half, because I live in the New Forest, which is in the middle of nowhere. And we walk, I got a cheer for the New Forest. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know Nottingham got a bigger cheer. It's bigger. <laughs> Later on, there'll be a fight between the Nottingham contingent and the New Forest contingent. But as we, as we walked in, 
uh, Primal Scream was playing, and my, the good lady Professor Her indoors, my other half, who isn't here in the audience because she's somewhere else watching Wet Leg. Yeah. Who, incidentally, you're all missing Wet Leg to see us. Why? They're great. They are just like the best band in the world. Anyway, we walked in, they were playing Primal Scream, and I think Linda nearly burst into tears, and it was a really sort of wonderful feeling of, wow, we're back at a, you know, at a festival. And how it was we- wonderful just to walk around earlier and just be like... Just, I was just smiling, just like seeing everybody walking around, having a nice time, like this is normal. And the fact that like you're all in close proximity with each other, I know it's weird, but also like it is lovely just to sort of be back in this sort of environment again. And I bet everyone's like secretly a bit nervous. No? No. So ju- technically, this podcast is about film, and we are meant to be talking about film. The thing, obviously, that's been on both of our minds is that for having not gone to the cinema for 18 months we both finally went back for the first what was the first film you saw back in the cinema actually in a cinema uh it was a quiet place part two yeah, yeah. has everyone has it, by, by a round of applause who's seen that film <laughs> quiet one that was an obvious joke i'm sorry <laughs> Did you, wanna, did you see it in the cinema? Yeah, so I, it wasn't the first thing I saw back. It, I did see it in the cinema. I saw it in the IMAX in London, mm-hmm. which, is, you know, which is absolutely enormous. And again, it did the same thing that the first Quiet Place had done, is that when I went in, everyone was being a bit noisy, and then as soon as the film started, it went really, really quiet. We have a, do you want to see... Should we want to show a clip from A Quiet Place Part 2? I'd love to show Let's it. Let's show a clip from A Quiet yeah. Place Part 2. Here we go. So how much was your experience of that enhanced by the fact that it was the first film that you'd seen in a cinema in 18 months? It was pretty exciting and kind of emotional to just be walking through the cinema again to the actual screen. Um, And also, this is just like the bare-bones sort of standard tension, like cinema-type film that like really gets you like gets you where you live like this sort of film it's very visceral so it was already like a great experience but yes just being back in that room again where there's no distractions was pretty it's pretty special actually did you find it difficult not going to cinemas because you and i would we carried on doing the podcast but we did them via zoom so jack this is the first time we've seen each other in about a year it's oh, so weird. More than a year. It was yeah. the first time we've seen each other in, 18, in something like 18 months. Everything that we've done between now and then has been, has been on Zoom. And I did find it really, really strange not going into cinemas. And I just I, I, getting used to watching things on a computer screen was really peculiar. Mm-hmm. But, so what was the feeling like of going back into the cinema for the first time? It was just, I feel like a kid. And, and, and we've talked about this before, but it feels a little bit like going back to church. Do you know what I mean? It's, I mean, I'm not religious in any sense, but I, you know, I have no idea what that's like. But the idea of going back to that place that I... It's not my place of worship. It's just, ah, I feel at home. And it was kind of, kind of giddy. Is that how you felt as well? Yeah. How many people here have been to see a film in the cinema since they reopened? Yeah. Okay. And how many went to see Quiet Place Part 2? Yeah. Okay, so that is... Okay, I know this is a kind of that was a rough, but that was a very large. It was a big whoop, and everyone went see quite. This is a podcast, everybody. Raise of hands doesn't really translate. (laughs) But so if, because when Quiet Place Part Two came out, Billy Friedkin, who was the director of The Exorcist, which I know I've mentioned before, 
said, I will be talking about that later on, said, you know, <laughs> cinema is back. And it did, it did feel like that. However, see, my, my, the first thing that I saw back, if any of you are around tomorrow, I'm doing an MK3D in the ballroom with Ben Wheatley. And Ben Wheatley, who directed, you know, Kill List and Sightseers, and his most recent film was In the Earth. And the first film that I saw back in a cinema was Ben Wheatley's In the Earth, but I saw it under circumstances which for me were kind of weirdly ideal. Because on the one hand, I love going to the cinema with an audience. On the other hand, I hate people. <laughs> and so there is this, this kind of really weird thing that I love the idea, I'm going to see it with everyone, and everyone's going to be experiencing it together, and that's absolutely fabulous. Why don't they shut up? Why are they talking? Why are they making noise? Why is this guy behind me kicking my seat? And in fact, when they did the return to cinemas protocol, there was this whole thing that if you bought a single seat, you know, they weren't able to sell the seat in front, the seat to the side or the seat behind, which I thought, that's fine. I can live with that for the rest of my life, frankly. And then Ben uh, Wheatley's new film, In the Earth, was coming out. And because I live in the New Forest rather than Nottingham, um, I wasn't able to get into London to see a screening of it. And so they put a screening on in my local cinema, which is the, the Harbour Lights in Southampton. And it was in... S Southampton in the house! <laughs> this is really kicking off. <laughs> Places! Yes. <laughs> so I went, to, I went to screen... So I went into the cinema. It was like first thing in the morning. They opened it up specially. Um, and so I went in at 8.30 in the morning, which is totally ideal for me. And I met the projectionist beforehand. And he said, it's in 239, really big kind of scope thing. And I said, fabulous, how many other people here? And he said, none. I said, this is my ideal screening. Can you turn the volume up to 11? And he said, we absolutely can. Regulations don't count if it's only you in the cinema. If we damage your hearing, it's your fault because you asked for it. So how many, now I imagine this is going to be a much lesser number. How many of you have seen In the Earth? Okay, either that's two very loud people or that was a... It, it did sound like two very loud people. Oh, it's a, I'm sorry, it's my child. I'm sorry. It's, <laughs> it really is. It literally is my child. That's... <laughs> yeah, I know, there, I know the other two aren't my child. I remember I was there. I know how many children I have. It's you and your sister. Okay. Oh, and Linda is here. Why aren't you seeing Wet Leg? They've they, finished. They've finished. How were they? Brilliant. They were great. Okay. How is this in comparison? Yeah, fair. Yeah, so, okay. Anyway, do you want to see the trailer for In the Earth? Fine. It's okay. a pretty great trailer. Shall we move our chairs slightly back so we can, do be, I not? We can bring it back in? And we'll turn it up. They tell me his story. These are his memories. Can you feel him now? In the Earth. No, I don't know what you mean. I think you do. So what are you working on? Searching ways of making crops more efficient. Funny place to study crops in a forest. We had to send a rescue party in to get a group out a couple of months ago. They got lost. Why didn't they use GPRS? There's no fun reception in there. People get a bit funny in the woods sometimes. You're worried she's gonna get you. Yeah, who is it? It's a local folktale. She's the spirit of the woods.
Sorry, doesn't that just look like the best film ever? <laughs> so, if you, if you want to know more about that, so Ben and I will be... I think you can put the light back on now to show our fabulous faces. Um, ben and I will be doing uh, the MK3D thing in, uh, in the ballroom at 3 o'clock tomorrow. But So that was my first experience back in the cinema. And because I love horror films, horror films for me are like the perfect... Thank you. Are like the perfect experience. And the best thing about it was that there is, there's a scene in the film that involves what may or may not turn into the main character having their foot amputated. And it goes on for quite a long time. And I don't want to spoil, you know, I don't want to spoil anything by telling you whether or not the foot does get amputated. But there are moments involving toes and axes. And the lovely thing is that when you're in a cinema on your own, you are able to shriek really, really loudly and nobody minds. So it was, it was, it was absolutely the perfect experience. I mean, I love seeing horror movies with other people. I love seeing you know, horror movies in which crowds are leaping around and being upset, but it was just perfect for me. Now the, okay, so what else have you seen in well, the cinema since then? Before we move on, I, just, I haven't seen In the Earth yet, yeah. but Joel Fry, who's the main character in that, mm -hmm. who's this incredible comedic actor. He is. I love that even in the trailer, you get the impression that he's really acting like he doesn't know that he's in a horror film. You know how like you've got most horror acting where it's like, what is this? Uh, I'm so terrified and I, I clearly know that this thing has meaning. I love that he's a little bit like, what's that? Uh, what's, what is this? Like, he's a little bit like he's acting like he's maybe in a comedy. And there's a, there is a brilliant thing during the amputation sequence when Reese Shearsmith... I mean, here's the thing. You're in a movie, you're in the middle of the woods, everything is creepy, and then Reese Shearsmith turns up. <laughs> Things are not going to go well. <laughs> and there's a bit when it, I'd hate if I was in the woods and Reese Shearsmith just turned up. But his, his, foot, his foot's congangrenous. And Reese Shearsmith with an axe says, it's going to have to come off. <laughs> and Joel Fry goes, is it though? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> so there is a kind of that brilliant, you know, it's comedy and horror. Anyway, come and, come and see Ben talk tomorrow because he's, he's great. He's, he, and he's, he's about to start shooting The Meg 2 <laughs> with Jason Statham. Seriously. Okay? We were talking to him about it earlier. And, and Jason Statham, Shark Puncher, part <laughs> two. I said, what is it this time? The shot was going to be bigger. He went, no, this is going to be more of them. <laughs> um, I have also seen, I'm sure everybody has, uh, the new Marvel film Black Widow. Okay, so that wasn't the reaction that you expected. It wasn't. Um, because, okay, we, so we specifically haven't spoken about it. We that. have not spoken about this yet, no. Okay. Uh, by, just Again, by Screams, who has seen Black Widow? <laughs> I think that's enough to sort of bring in some spoilers. Um... Like it was eh? like it's five or six years late. It's a little bit annoying because it feels like this is Marvel going. Sorry, I know we should have done this earlier, and we've completely mistreated this character, and now she's. I mean, this is spoilers from a different film, but she's dead, and now we're doing this prequel and trying to insert it but also set up Florence Pugh as the next Black Widow. It was just a little bit of an in-between film that feels like it was just like, it didn't really belong anywhere. Uh, my favorite thing about it though was Florence Pugh. I thought she was fantastic and really funny and clearly everybody's like completely taken with her. Like I'm just, I'm quoting her all the time. I just keep going, shit plan. I just keep doing that like over and over again. Um, but overall, I didn't think it was, I thought it was, it could have been like Jason Bourne in the Marvel Cinematic Universe 
but it ended up just starting a little bit like that, almost like this globe-trotting espionage, but then it turned into something a bit more ridiculous. I mean, the ending fight was literally, <laughs> you can't punch me because of I smell. Like, that is, what a weird thing to, like, put in a movie like this. All right. Do you, should, do you want to watch a clip from Black Widow before I explain to you why you're wrong? Okay. Yeah, all right, okay. All right. fair enough. <laughs> Okay, you got a plan, or shall I just stay dug and cover? My plan was to drive us away. Well, your plan sucks. You're welcome. Right, on the, okay, that, unfortunately, that clip doesn't prove what I was about to explain. Okay, well, I'll do this anyway. Here's the thing. Firstly, it is much more of a character-driven movie than many of the Marvel movies have been. Because the whole point about it is nothing that happens in the film can affect anything else because everything has already happened. Yep. We know how Black Widow di dies and, incidentally, is the only character in the Marvel Universe who is actually properly dead. And has stayed dead. Has stayed dead. There is no way that she can come back unless, of course, somebody decides that she can come back. But there is no way, theoretically, that she can come back. Currently, Fine. she is dead. Currently, she is properly dead and not coming back okay and they've set up Florence Peter to step in so everything that happens in the film happens in a space in which it doesn't have any effect on anything else which is a good thing I agree because what it means is that actually what you're interested in is what the characters are doing between each other the woman who directed it who's actually a very good director is interested in the character stuff so all the stuff between her and her sister who isn't really a sister and a mother who isn't really a mother and a father who isn't really a father is like a sitcom that just happens to be existing in the middle of the Marvel Universe, okay? Point number one. Point number two, and this is the problem, Simon Mayo and I have discussed this at some length, the big issue with the film is the accent issue. So, Ray Winston's Russian accent. Who it, lets Ray Winston do accents? Know, but, here's the, but here's the thing, right, okay? They keep hiring him to do other accents, and it's like, he's just Ray Winston. Ray that's, Winston that's does That's all he this can was, do. He goes, all right, I'm Ray Winston. They go, all right, Ray, well, in this movie, we'd like you to play an Australian. All right, I can do an Australian. <laughs> Poor blimey. Ray, in this film, you're German. Right, German, yeah, all right, line up. You know, it's, it's, you're Spanish in this one. Hola, I'm, you know, that's what he does. Yeah, he's Brad Pitt in Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> but the, the genius of it is that when it comes to Black Widow, Ray has decided to do one word in every sentence as Russian. So he, he goes, all right, I've got this operation that we're doing at the moment. <laughs> if you don't sort it out really quickly, we are going to... And, and like in the middle of a sentence, suddenly there's a little bit... So that's the first thing. Second thing is, and, and no one has yet adequately explained this to me, the Russian family who are living in America as a secret family, yep. okay? so they're Russian, but they're American, but they're, but they're actually Russian... When they speak to everyone else in America, they speak with perfect American accents, okay? They go, hi, yeah, this is great. I love being in Ohio, listening to Nirvana. Perfect American accent. Perfect American accent, thank you very much. When they speak to each other, they go, yes, this is very difficult. What is it, all this? You know, why is it that they can speak perfect English to each other in company, but when they're on their own, they suddenly go back to, hello, boombi boombi, going to Kansas City, Kansas City, here I come. Kansas City, baby. Speak Kansas Russian City. to each other. <laughs> they're not, yes, exactly. Either speak <laughs> Russian, but don't speak English with a bit of a cod Russian accent. So, 
the fact that despite the accent soup that's going on in that film, I actually really liked the characters and cared about the characters and cared about Florence Pugh. And yes, at the end, it turns into Captain Scarlet and everyone's fighting, falling out of the sky. And you said, he's right, you can't punch me, I smell. (laughs) The fact that I like the characters, and believe me, I have watched enough Marvel films in which I don't care about the characters at all. I mean, you and I saw... Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame together. I'm pretty sure we saw Infinity War together, but I'm not sure if we saw Endgame together. Okay, we came out of Infinity War. The one where everyone gets snapped at the end, and you were like, but they're all going to be back. Yeah, exactly. We, we, we came out of the pub. Everyone dies at the end. Sorry about the plot spoiler. At the end of Infinity War, everyone dies. Or is it half the, half. Half the cast? Half the, half the people. Half of the universe. Half the universe die. And we walked out, we went into the pub, and Jack and his mates, who have a collective age of about five, were all very, very upset. And I said, but they're all going to be back. But, the, but the, 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 the rebuttal to that is that, yes, and we know that, and you know that, because we're like bathing in the culture of cinema but the films are being made for kids really and the kids don't know that so when the kids are watching that film for the first time they're seeing spider-man die and thinking oh, like what how, how what, what's going to happen next like we know because we know that there is a follow-up coming out in a year's time but those people don't really know and i think that's that's who it's for we don't need to like spoil that for them right straw poll how many of you saw avengers infinity war okay seriously at the end of avengers infinity war when half the cast died how many of you thought they weren't coming back yeah fair that that is the we all knew they were coming back (laughs) okay fine spider-man just got there (laughs) okay so we know he's got more films coming out yeah one more time. Your daughter cried. Okay, here's, a, yeah, here's another one. Oh, now Even a though you now all knew they were all definitely going to come back, how many people cried at the end of Infinity War? <laughs> stories are stories. It doesn't matter if you know where they're going. Like, the emotion's still there. Okay, I hate to say this, but I actually think you're right. <laughs> This very rarely happens. Let me bathe in this moment. Thank you. However, <laughs> on the subject of Black Widow... Go on. How many people here saw Black Widow? How many people here liked Black Widow? How many people here who saw Black Widow didn't like it? Yeah, Gabriel, you are my child. You are not allowed to join in. I like it when you join in, Gabriel. You're usually on my side. Crawler. He texts me after most so, podcasts being so, like, I, I heard my dad talking in the other room and I was like, what's he talking about? <laughs> there, was, there was like one lone voice down here of somebody who didn't like, you didn't like Black Widow, right? Okay, but you were kind of on your own. So? How many other people didn't like Black Widow? Okay, like three. You should form like a support group or something, you know. So we'll meet up afterwards for do drinks. You know, do you know what it was, though? It was, for me, it was like a waste of potential because it felt like that family dynamic, although interesting because you're just watching people who aren't really a family, but it's the only family that they've got. But I really didn't ever feel like they really did care each o- about each other or like they should care about each other. Like, it just felt like the story was telling me, but they really care about each other, but I didn't ever really feel that. And, like, little things bothered me, like, like, like small scenes, like... Florence Pugh just like saying, I don't have reproductive organs, by the way. Like that felt like it, for me, and I'm not a woman, 
don't know if you can tell, but I'm not a woman, so I don't really know if it's my place to comment on this, but for me that felt a little bit like dismissive, and it felt like it could have been a bigger moment in the film for, the, for her to be like, they really messed with me because of you, because you gave me up, David Harbour. And David Harbour felt a little bit, I don't know, that scene just felt like it, it I don't know, it just felt, made me feel very uncomfortable with the way that they dealt with that moment. And it felt like it could have been a bigger deal. Okay, so I'm going to do the thing that I promised I wouldn't do, which is <laughs> Wonder Woman 1984. <laughs> what, what, what? Terrible. It's, no, it's not. It is, it's awful. Wonder Woman 1984 is a really decent film. It is not. It is a it really, really decent isn't. film. It rips along, it plays exactly to its audience. The, audience. the audience that it's aimed at know exactly what they're getting. It's empowering, it's fun. It's lo- I mean, one thing with you know all the... Relinquish DC- your wish, everybody! Relinquish your wish! That's so lame. It's, it's awful. It's uplifting and joyous. And after, you know, did you watch the Snyder Cut of uh, Justice League? Yeah, of course I did. We yeah, talked f- about it. Yeah, four hours of, you know, like the Snyder Cut of Justice League is at least coherently boring, whereas the uncut <laughs> version is just short boring. Wonder Woman 1984 was great fun. It was great fun. I really enjoyed it. I smiled all the way through. How many people enjoyed Wonder Woman 1984? <laughs> I win, you're wrong. <laughs> Why, what, do you, what do you not like about it? About Wonder Woman 1984? Yes. Oh, so many things. But, like, I, it was just, for me, it was just... It felt like it was out of the wrong era. It felt like it was made years ago. Like, it felt like almost 90s. Like, I didn't want to see... Kristen Wiig do the whole cliche of like she takes off her glasses and now she's pretty like that was a weird thing to include like all the CGI was awful as well like her being a leopard woman like all the the, the, just none of it made sense to me it was just so bad and I actually really like the first Wonder Woman film I don't know what you did like in it. I didn't know what you just, saw I in just, it at all. I just enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. I thought it was. I thought it was sunny. I thought it was upbeat. I thought it was actually the film that we well, needed. What, what about the fact that like everyone's wishing for stuff and it's this really weird. Like again, like I'm not sure why they did it this way. Where. Um, Chris Pine's character takes over the body of another man who doesn't know that his body is being used in this way and at the end there's just this weird almost hallmark Christmas scene where he just meets Gal Gadot for the first time and they have a little bit of a rapport with each other weird, just weird stuff that's that's perfectly normal, that's just a demonic (laughs) possession narrative which is always a happy ending there's no problem with that at all that is perfectly normal. Okay. Do you want to say something about Supernova? Because getting away from all the Marvel yes. stuff, you, so you particularly loved, because you saw Supernova in the cinema, right? I did, yeah. I saw Supernova on the day that I got vaccinated. Um, I assume less people have seen this, but just again by a cheer, who has seen this film Supernova? It's a great movie. Basically, it's about a couple who are understanding that their relationship is coming to an end, but not because of any personal reasons, but because of one of them having uh, early onset dementia and the, the dealing with the, uh, just dealing with that. It's a quite a uh, heavy topic, but it's dealt with in a really like light touch kind of way, and it almost feels like um, almost like a breakup film actually, like two people realizing that something is coming to an end, and it never delves into. Uh, like have you, you saw The Father and, yeah. you, and there's many films that have yeah. been dealing with dementia recently weirdly but a lot of those films seem to go into the darker sort of places of how that disease can affect people in a really horrific way and this sort of dances over that but not in a way that made me feel uncomfortable but more like 
it was focusing on them as a couple and the acceptance of the fact that they were going to have to deal with this very difficult thing. And it was very funny and very charming, and they were both incredible in it. It's Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth. I always, I always have to check if it's Colin Firth or Colin Farrell. I always have to get those two mixed would up. It would have been a very different yeah. movie with Colin Farrell. <laughs> Colin Farrell would have just punched Stanley yeah. Tucci, and that would have been the end of it. But yeah, it was wonderful, and I really I was surprised by it. And... Um, yeah, just really just enjoyed it. Okay, because you said it's funny and charming, which it is. Do you want to show a clip and then, then we'll talk about yeah, absolutely. the other thing you said? Okay, fine. So. Can I ask you, did you want one? An autograph? From him? Because I saw you looking at it and I wasn't sure if you wanted one. Tusca? No, it's all right. He's very sharp. You normally, do you have a pen on you? Yeah, all right. But if you want one, he'll sign one for you. He's shy, but he will. On either on a napkin or if you have one of his piano albums, he'll... Thanks. Okay. All right. Thank you. It's very nice of you. Thank you. How did you come to be this person? I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know why I do it, because it really isn't even satisfying anymore half the time, anyway. Uh, so why do you do it? Because of the other half. I agree with you. I think it is funny and charming. I, I, have, a, I have a couple of issues. Um, one of the things that's happened recently is that there has been quite a lot of movies about Alzheimer's. It's kind of become a, you know, a subject that the, that the cinema has suddenly woken up to. And many people in the audience and you know, many people will have had experience, first-hand experience of Alzheimer's. And you know, if you have, you know, we all know... Don't whoop that one. No, no, but it's, it's, it is, so it is a subject which needs to be addressed by movies, yes, but it also it's a subject which if you have dealt with it, it's, you know. And I like Supernova because it's funny and because what's happening appears to be happening within the context of, an, of, a, of, a, of the rest of the world going on. So actually that scene, for example, is funny because it's a funny scene and it just has nothing to do with exactly. yeah, just who they are as people. And there's a lovely moment when they arrive at, at the family of Colin, Colin Firth's family and the family don't know how to address to Stanley Tucci the fact that he's been diagnosed with uh, early onset Alzheimer's. And somebody comes over to him and says, how are you? He says, I'm fine. Who are you? <laughs> and actually, it is true that in the, in the course of what happens, you know, with Alzheimer's, there is. There's moments of laughter and there's moments of joy and there's moments... I mean, I, I've told this story before, but, you know, my mum, my uh, who passed away, had Alzheimer's. And one day I'd taken her and her best friend Jill out for a day and we'd gone to the seaside and we'd done all this stuff and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And we were driving home and mum turned to Jill and said, Mark never comes around anymore. And I, <laughs> I literally went, mum, I am driving the car. And it, you know, and it, it, it is funny. In the context of that coming out up against something like The Father, mm -hmm. which I thought was, you know, had no sense of humour to it at all. I, don't, I, mean, I know some people love The Father and I know it affected them very profoundly. I just thought The Father was Anthony Hopkins showing off and it did feel like a movie that was going, hey, hey, you know, we're dealing, we're deal really dealing with this. So, and I actually preferred Supernova. We're really dealing we're with really this. We're really dealing with this. <laughs> Supernova actually, you know, felt like a more I think it kind honest of, film. I, I, it avoided some of the... 
I don't want to say cliches, but for lack of a better term, the cliches of, of dementia stories. Yeah, yeah. Like you don't get to see the bits that in the film that you think you usually would see in a story about something like this. In fact, it very deliberately avoids them and makes it more about these two and their relationship with each other. And again, just a side note, it's very nice to see a film about two gay characters where the fact that they're gay isn't a, sta isn't a thing at yeah. all. Like it, it could have been any two people in yeah. dealing with this situation. And I think that even though I'm making a deal about it right now by saying that they didn't make a deal out of it, it's nice to see that it's just a film about two people who were in love and they're dealing with something and they just happen to be gay. I think that's cool. When you went to see it in the cinema, were there other people there? Yes, oh, yes. So and it was, it was I, I was seeing it at an early preview screening at an Everyman cinema, which was lovely. Um, but it was just like a mistake. I just turned up at one point and it happened to be on. Um, but yeah, it was like uh, a fair few people in there okay. um, who all seemed to be very like sniffly by the end of it. It was all quite... <laughs> By the end. Okay, so. but did they laugh at the jokes? Yeah, hundred percent. Everyone was clear. Like the atmosphere in the in the cinema was really, really lovely. Okay. Did you did, were you less taken with this film? No, I like it. I mean, I thought. I mean, I did get a little bit like, oh, here we go again, because I've this is now the third Alzheimer's film in you know and. There's the thing that I'm not. Many critics said this. There are all these Alzheimer's films, and they're all very forgettable. But there was definitely a sort of. But I, it. Again, Jack, it's like when suddenly uh. you're faced with a whole train of them, that's what you think. But actually, I thought Supernova worked because it, because it was funny and because it felt natural and it didn't feel like it was... I think it worked as like a road trip movie as well. I think, no, I think you had it right when you said breakup movie. In fact, yeah. I know you had it right because that was actually the phrase that I used in my review in The Observer that you ripped it off of. So, well done. I'll never tell. <laughs> okay, can I move on to Summer of Soul? Please, yeah. Okay, so I haven't seen this, so I'm excited to ask you about it. Okay, so the thing that I want everyone to see is how many of you have seen Summer of Soul? Okay. So Lovely. A, I'm delighted that you've, you've seen everything. Like, literally every time. But it's great, isn't it? Okay, so Summer of Soul is... The, I'm going I'm to be... I'm going to stand up to do this, right? Summer of Soul is this film that you absolutely have to see. It is a documentary about the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival, which has been written out of popular history. So when you think of 1969 and pop music, you think of uh, Woodstock, the Mike Wadley film with you know, all the acts that played at Woodstock, and you think of Gimme Shelter, which is Altamont, Rolling Stones at the end of... So the Rolling Stones, Altamont is the end of the 60s, 69. Woodstock is kind of, you know, nice. the great summer of love, blah, blah, blah. The most important thing that happened was the Harlem Cultural Festival, which was filmed. The whole thing was filmed. It happened over six weekends. And the acts were Stevie Wonder, Gladys Knight and the Pips, um, Nina Simone at absolutely the height of her powers. I mean, this is incredible. The fifth dimension, this incredible roster of acts. And Questlove discovered that this had all been filmed and somehow written out of history. So he made a documentary which involves the footage from the concert, but also people who were either there or were actually taking part in the concert, remembering it, one of whom says, I'm so glad you've done this because I thought I was going crazy. I thought I had imagined this, uh, this concert. We're going to play you just a little bit of a, a clip, which is Gladys Knight and the Pips. Nick, we'll do Gladys Knight. Yeah, she's Gladys Knight and the Pips. This is, the, this is like just one moment in a concert which is filled with the most extraordinary music. And you see a little snippet of the interview as well, and then I'll go on about it a bit more. So here we go, this is from Summer of Soul. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're gonna bring up some folks. I was nervous. 
We were so excited by being there. We join our hands and say prayers before we went on stage. Gladys Knight! Now, when I stepped on stage, I was totally, totally taken aback because I didn't expect a crowd like that. And the pips! I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. So the other acts, you've got things like you've got uh, the Pop Staples and the Staples Singers. You've got Mavis Staples performing uh, uh, with uh, Mahalia Jackson, which is just... I mean, everyone's in tears when this is happening. It is the most remarkable stuff. They filmed the whole thing, and the whole thing was basically sat upon since 1969. It's finally out. It's on Disney Plus in a couple of weeks' time, but at the moment it's in the cinema, and I wish that I had seen it in the cinema. You didn't see it in the cinema? No, I saw, what happened was, they said, because it was just coming out as a streaming thing, and they sent me a link to it, and I watched it, and I thought, this is the best concert movie I have ever seen. And I don't know whether any of you know, but we did a Secrets of Cinema uh, episode, which was purely about pop movies. And one of the brief sections in it was about concert movies. And I really love a very good concert movie. So I love The Last Waltz, which is, of course, the thing that gave us Spinal Tap. I think Gimme Shelter is brilliant. I think it's one of the greatest horror movies ever made. I think it's absolutely terrifying. I mean, it's, it's a terrifying film. Uh, you know, I think, I think Woodstock, in, in its longer version, when it's got you know, everything in it, is kind of celebratory in its own way. There's a lovely f- f- doc that Nick Rogue made in the 1960s of the, of the early Glastonbury Fair, when Glastonbury really was like a field with a couple of hippies wandering around in it and people playing at three o'clock in the morning, and you know, it, it wasn't the huge event that it is now. I love those films, but I think this is the best concert film I've ever seen. Wow. The performances are unbelievable. And it is absolutely the case that it was written out of history because, as Questlove said, nobody was interested in 
this black cultural festival. They had Woodstock, and in fact, they tried to sell it as black Woodstock on the grounds that they had, you know, these amazing acts, and there just wasn't any interest. And you look at the stuff of Nina Simone. Nina Simone does, I think, what is the first ever public performance of Young, Gifted and Black, and it's all on film, and it's just stunning. So is is, is most of the film, then, like, interviews with with people talking about that time and then uh, shots of like them basically performing the, the, the you know yeah the, the film performances op- the film opens and closes with a guy called Musa Jackson who was a festival goer he was at the festival when he was a kid and they put out a call to anyone who was at the festival to you know to be involved in the film and they start with a shot of him looking at the footage of the fifth dimension and he bursts into tears because he remembered seeing it and he remembered falling in love with the lead singer of The Fifth Dimension because he was there at the gig. And this is all then intercut with this brilliant news footage. In the middle of the, of the festival, which lasted over six weeks, Neil Armstrong lands on the moon and the news station sends somebody down to the Harlem Cultural Festival to interview them. And they say, what do you think? Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. And the guy says, yeah, that's great, but can we get some of the money down here in Harlem? I mean, this is much more important. And it (laughs) it does put all of that stuff into context. And the music is absolutely ass-kicking. And I've seen it twice, and I want to go back and see it again, but I want to see it in a cinema, because what I want to do is actually, it's one of the very few films when I want to sit there with somebody behind me kicking my seat, because they just can't keep still. Nick, who's doing all the video projection, went to see it in a cinema and said, literally, the seats were rocking. The last time I was in a cinema when the seats were rocking was I went to, years and years ago, I went to the Phoenix in East Finchley to see Eraserhead with my friend Nick Cooper. And uh, Nick, if he was ever bored with a film, his knee would start doing this. And he was in the middle of Eraserhead and the whole row of seats was going like this. And then famously, I say famously because I've told this story before, there's a bit when in this dream sequence, this, these weird alien sperm are falling out of the sky and the lady in the radiator with the weird cheeks is squishing them under her feet while singing in heaven everything is fine and Nick turns to me and goes that wouldn't happen <laughs> but so that was it was literally like it was having Nick I just you you would love this you would absolutely love it I am so excited to see it I'm going to try and catch it before it leaves cinemas but, but, it, like, but okay but so that's the problem but if I have to watch it on my telly I will the problem is I think it's, it's cinema life is limited because of the fact that it's going to be on streaming services mm. so once it gets on to Disney it will cut down the possibility of people seeing it in cinemas I mean if you would you, if, take, my, take my word for it that, that movie is as good as I'm saying it is would you like to see that in a cinema? Would you like to see it in a cinema more than sitting at home watching it on your telly? And people, people always say this stuff about, if you can get stuff on streaming, you won't go to the cinema. But you can buy a can of lager in a supermarket, but people still go to the pub. Why? Because it's better. You can hear all the bands who are playing here at home on six people yeah. or on a thing, but everyone's here. Why? Because it's better. It's, because a, it, it's, it's experiencing it's, it with other people. I saw... Um, uh, I saw Judas and the Black Messiah mm. at home, and then I went to go see that in the cinema when everything had opened up again. Look at that. Nick's on it. Look at that. Well done, man. Well done. Um, and... 
it was ju it just works so much better in the cinema and I loved it when I watched it the first time but there was something about being in that room that made the message of it and the and the, the story of it just hit so much harder and like and what I'm saying is I left feeling sadder than I did when I watched it at home I just yeah, felt yeah. it a, a whole lot more it's and it's so beautifully shot as well I remember when we spoke about this when it first came out is I was talking about how playful the camera is and it felt like Spielberg actually in terms of the way that like the camera is is moving in in Judas and the Black Messiah and seeing that on a cinema like properly projected was so beautiful I'm I was so pleased I got to see that and also recently and I'm sorry Nick you don't have a poster for this but because things on you know cinemas aren't exactly thriving right now because things are starting to warm up now mm. They've been showing quite a lot of older films. Yeah. And I got to see Donnie Darko in the cinema for the first time. Oh, wow. And wow. It was okay, so okay. great to okay, see so that in the cinema. Which version? Oh, obviously the original. The proper version. Yeah, fuck yeah. the director's yeah, cut. Yeah, it's rubbish. He doesn't know what he's doing. Rubbish. <laughs> he's ruined his own film. <laughs> it's, I know, it's extraordinary. <laughs> okay, so what's the best experience you've ever had in a cinema? Oh, wow. I think the first thing that comes to my mind is Gone Girl. Because... That was a chocked full cinema, like literally not a, a place was was uh, was free, and it's such a like pulpy, exciting, bizarre ride of a film, and obviously incredibly well made. It's David Fincher, but I remember at one point t turning to my friend who was with me, and I can't remember at what point in the film this was, but I remember just turning and going, I don't know how this is going to end. <laughs> I was just like so giddy with like, just keep going. Like halfway through the film, when she does the whole cool girl uh, reveal, yeah, yeah. and reveals this whole thing's been a, a plot, yeah. I thought this Plot was... spoiler, sorry. Sorry. Gone Girl's been out for a while, it's fine. Yeah. Um, but when that happened, I was like, is this the end? Is this like an ending sequence that's going to like cut to the... And it was like only halfway through. It was just because I was being taken on such a ride and that moment as well when she slits the guy's throat and it's the music, it's Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's score that like booms through the speakers. Just overwhelming. It was so brilliant. And I remember as well at the beginning of it, thinking David Fincher had made it like a misstep because like there was some obvious dubbing in it and it was kind of like weirdly like cheesy in the romantic parts and then I realized oh he's doing this on purpose because it's supposed to feel like fake and weird and manufactured because that made me like think about the beginning of the movie later when it was real that it was all a plan all along that for me is like the first thing that comes to mind because it was such a like universal experience where you could feel the electricity from everybody that everybody was so engaged with what was going on Okay, can I tell you my best ever cinema experience? No, no. I don't want to hear it. Thank you very much. You've been a great audience. <laughs> no, what was the what was okay. uh, was it the Exorcist? So, yeah, it was. Brilliant. So. <laughs> Look, I am nothing if not consistent. Okay. So, firstly, I imagine everyone has well, everyone of a, of age has seen The Exorcist, right? Okay. You haven't, because scary or just because you haven't got around to it. You're not really into horror films, okay. It's not a horror film, it's a drama that happens to have a horror side to it. It's actually a love story about man and God, but never mind. Um, anyway, <laughs> the best experience I ever had with it, when I was a kid, right, The Exorcist came out when I, when, in 73 when I was 10 years old, and there were all these stories from America about how terrifying it was and the effect it was having on audiences. 
And I was enthralled by this. And when I was too young to go and see the film, there was my local cinema was the classic in Hendon. It was a three screener. And I went to see a movie in the classic in Hendon in screen two. And The Exorcist was playing in screen one. And outside the cinema were nuns sprinkling holy water on people going into the film. Seriously, and a priest handing out leaflets that said, if you see this film and become possessed by the devil, call Father John 01703. And I've still got one of those leaflets. I reckon somebody would do that now as a PR stunt. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't pay for this stuff. So, <laughs> finally, I get to see the film like many years later, like five, six years later. I'm still slightly too young. But I, and I went with a, with a friend of mine. And... We saw it, well, the first time I saw it was at the Phoenix with Nick, who didn't understand uh, Eraserhead. But I've seen it about a hundred times now. So about the fifth or sixth time, I went with a friend of mine who halfway through the film, he must have fallen asleep. It was like a late night screening. He must have fallen asleep and he woke up during the medical examination where there's this banging sound on the soundtrack. Bang, 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 bang. And he threw a fit, okay? He threw a fit in that he went completely rigid. Like, literally, he went into a... Like this. And he was balanced on his, uh, his heels on the floor and the back of his neck on the seat, okay? Like a board. Like, literally hard as a board. And I turned. I went, oh, my God. That's, you know, wow. I, I don't know what to... Simon, are you all right? And he was completely... So I thought, I've got to get him out. So I picked him up by his shoulders, like a board... And I took him into the aisle and I started taking him up. We were in the balcony and it had steps in it. And as he went up the balcony, he went, bong, bong, bong. And the whole cinema turned and went, the film's killed someone. <laughs> He's dead. You know, I got Simon out, you know, got him with you. You all right? You all right? Oh, yeah, I don't know what happened. Then what happened? I said, you, you fine? He went, yeah, why? I said, I want to go back in. I want to go. So he went back, and I went in. I've never seen an audience so excited to see a film. After it, it apparently killed somebody. And the only time I've had that experience matched was at the Edinburgh Film Festival when they did the the premiere of Irreversible, that Gaspar Noé film, which again, at the beginning of it, has got a scene in which something very violent happens with, uh, with a fire extinguisher. It's a fire extinguisher head interface. And it goes bang, bang, bang. And the guy in front of me went bloom and slumped. And I thought, oh, this is my cue. And I picked him up and I carried him. And literally as I was carrying him, everyone goes, it's, the film's killed somebody. <laughs> it was the best screening of that film ever. So my two greatest cinema experiences have been when the cinema appeared to have the power to actually relieve somebody of their life. And I, I don't mean this in a bad way. If, you, if you've ever had that experience in a cinema of being like you're saying, electrified by Gone Girl. Do you know what? I, I, I <laughs> This is kind of weird because it's nothing like as intense as The Exorcist. But in the second Hunger Games film, Catching Fire, which is the best one, there is a really intense scene where a load of birds sound like like loved ones, like, oh, like yeah, shouting yeah, yeah. and screaming for help. Yeah. And if I found it so intense that I got cramped that I had to like throw my leg into the into the aisle because I was so like pent up by how stressed it was. So yeah, I've had that physical not like a board, like I'm not I'm not like acted like I was dead, but it was like physically like I'd been taken over by something. Has anybody here ever fainted watching or anything a movie? like that during a film? Midnight Express. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah? 
Midnight Express is harrowing. Midnight Express is very, very harrowing. Also got a brilliant score by Giorgio Moroder. The first electronic score to win the Oscar for best score, I think. Maybe. I think, I think. I made up But it's, I don't know, I, just, I think any movie that has the power to do that, that has the power to upset people. Have you ever heard the story about, I'm asking you all rhetorically, have you ever heard the story that John Gielgud tells about going to see the long version of Caligula in New York? I'll take that as a no. So Caligula, you know, the Tinto Brass film from 1979, which has got everyone in it, like uh, it's Malcolm McDowell, Helen Mirren, Peter O'Toole, John Gilgood, like, the, you know, the cream of acting royalty. But the whole thing is financed by Bob Guccione, who's the guy who runs Penthouse magazine. And Bob Guccione makes the film and then decides that when they finish the film, the problem with it is, is there's not enough sex in it. So he goes away and films all these completely irrelevant sex scenes, the hardcore sex scenes, and he sticks them into the film. So the long version of the film is four hours long and it's got all manner of debauchery and like people getting along famously in ways you couldn't possibly imagine. And John Gielgud tells this story about the only place you could see the X-rated version of Caligula was one cinema in New York in which it cost $15 to get in. And he went to see it because John Gielgud was very proud of it. He referred to it as my first pornographic feature. And, and he said he went to see this film in New York and in front of him were two little old ladies. And he was convinced, well, they must be here because, you know, John Gielgud, Helen Mirren, Peter O'Toole, Laura, you know, all that lot. He thought, what on earth are they going to make of this? So he said, he, so he went in behind them and they sat down and he sat down behind them and the film started. It was four hours of just wall-to-wall filth, you know, with some famous people, but, like, just the most unbelievable amount of debauchery and stuff. And he said at the end of the film, after the four hours of it, the curtains closed and these two little old ladies got up and they started walking up the aisle. And he walked up behind them and one of them turned to the other one and went, well, that was worth every cent. (laughs) (laughs) I also love that you mentioned the $15 like that was supposed to be extortionate when that's just very standard these days. Back then, that was was an extortionate (laughs) thing. See, that's what, in a way, that's what I want from cinemas being back. I know that streaming services are, you know... They're not the death of anything. They're not the death of anything. They're not the death of anything. In the same way that the printing press wasn't the death of printing and the same way that, you know, television wasn't the death of cinema and video wasn't the death of cinema and 3D was just a stupid idea. Yeah, what the fuck was that? I'm glad that's over. Yeah. What are you looking forward to for the rest of the year? I'm just looking forward to seeing stuff that I don't know about. Whenever anyone says to me, what, you know, what are you looking forward to? The stuff I'm all... If you're a, film, if you're a regular film critic, you end up seeing six, seven, eight movies in, over a couple of days. And it's always the sixth, seventh or eighth movie that you don't know anything about. All you know is it's in this screening room at four o'clock in the afternoon. And you go along and see it and it completely blindsides you. That's what I'm looking forward to. What are you looking forward to? Dune. Are you, are you officially saying Dune, or are you saying that to be Dune rather than Dune? It's Dune, isn't it? Dune? Dune. Dune? Dune? Are you English? Yeah, I'm from Nottingham. Okay, it's, if, you, if you see a pile of sand by the, by, the, by the sea, do you say that's a sand dune? A sand dune. No, you don't. You say my accent, I think it's my accent. You say a sand dune. A sand dune. Yeah, dune, dune, dune. Oh, why are we doing this? Okay, so you're, so you're looking forward to Dune. Dune. <laughs> 100%. It looks like grown-up Star Wars. And I, I, like, I, did you see the new trailer that came out, I think, yesterday? 
No, yeah, no. Big love in the room for yeah. the Dune trailer. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Killed it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that I'm looking forward to the film that I don't know about yet. I think that's going to be great. But I also realise that we've got a back catalogue of films that should have come out a year ago. Yeah. I'm over Bond. Couldn't give a shit. Does anyone, does anyone care about Bond anymore? It's like, doesn't, doesn't it kind of feel like we've all seen it, although we haven't seen it? And it was there, and then it wasn't, and then it was there, and then it wasn't, and it was there. And Daniel Craig is going to be an old-age pensioner by the time we finally get to see the film. <laughs> There's so much time to die. <laughs> Round of applause, Mr. Jack Howard, everybody. Thank you very much. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. the Bond thing, I have to say, is kind of getting to the point that, you know, when it was Danny Boyle doing it, I was kind of excited. Yeah. And then it wasn't Danny Boyle, and then it wasn't... Although, Boyle. like, Kerry Fukunaga is a really, really interesting director because he did the first series of True Detective, which is really... A Do you think they kill Bond? Cause in the, it, cause it, Let's make some predictions. Um, my prediction is that I don't know if they're going to kill Bond. They might do that because they've never done it before and it would be interesting. But my prediction is that the, ho- the, the Rami Malek's character is going to be Dr. No, which obviously everyone will know is the first ever Bond film that they made. And if this happens, you will have to remember that I called this. I think that Bond will say, no, time to die. And then kill him. That's very good. I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah. That's my prediction. I'm calling it right now. I guarantee you that that is a better line than any line that's actually in the I film. wouldn't say that. Phoebe Waller-Bridge was a writer on the film. No, actually, no, that's a, no, that's a good point. No, a good point. Okay, so you are excited about it. You Look, think I'm a like- Bond fan. Like, I'm, I'm going to see it. I'm going to be excited. As soon as the circles go across the screen, I'm going to be, like, completely into it. But, yeah, like... June, June is like the thing that I'm June. really excited about seeing in IMAX because Denis Villeneuve is just like a genius and I think it's going to be unlike anything I did an on, seen. I, I did an on-stage thing with Denis Villeneuve. I was there. Oh, you were? That's when really you were entering Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott and they were, this is when they were introducing Blade Runner 2049 <laughs> and Denis Villeneuve said, well, the whole thing is very important because he's French, right? He's summit. He's summing. That's, that's, my, that's, that's me doing Ray Winston. He said the whole... <laughs> Ray Winston playing Denis Villeneuve for the purposes of this anecdote. He went, yeah, the, the thing that's really important is that, uh, is that uh, Deckard, you know, he might be, he might be a, a, an android, but he might not. And Ridley Scott went, no, he is an android. <laughs> and Denis Villeneuve went, no, but the whole thing is it's ambiguous. And Ridley Scott went, no, it isn't. <laughs> It doesn't make any sense if he's not an android. And Denis Villeneuve went, no, but the whole thing with the movie. So, no, it doesn't make sense. And they literally started having a row. It was like being in the middle of a marital before the... the and it did feel a little bit like Ridley Scott might be drunk. Oh, I just think... I don't think Ridley Scott was drunk. I think Ridley Scott is just at the point in his life when he doesn't care what yeah. he says. And it was like Alan Parker. I mean, Alan Parker, in the kind of later period of his career, was fantastic. I mean, Alan Parker was always brilliantly cantankerous, but he did not care what he said about anybody at all. And I just think Ridley Scott was... No, I made Blade Runner. He's an android. And, and you didn't make Blade Runner. You made the next one, but he is an android. Well, I thought the genius of Denis Villeneuve did in 2049, and I i don't know if this is controversial. I think that 2049 is better than the original. Split the room. And... Um, uh, and I think the genius of it is that no matter which version of Blade Runner you like, Denis Villeneuve has made a sequel to that version of Blade Runner. 
Yeah, no, I think that's fair enough. I mean, I don't. I, do, I think tw- Blade Runner twenty forty nine is brilliant. I say, I think saying it's better than Blade Runner is, you know, it. it yeah, it isn't. But, I think um, it is. It is though. No, but it's very, it's very, very good. And actually, the fact that the two of them work together is very encouraging. But Blade Runner, which is, exists in at least five different versions, in its best versions is an absolute masterpiece, and in its worst versions is a flawed masterpiece, but it's never anything other than a masterpiece. I mean, I remember seeing Blade Runner when it came out in the cinema, in its first version, with all the ridiculous voiceover that was stuck on afterwards and all the stuff that doesn't make any sense (laughs) because they recut it, and that ridiculous ending when the footage from the end of the film, because they wanted a happy ending, he had to go to Stanley Kubrick and say, have you got any outtakes from the mountains of The Shining that we can use so it looks like they're escaping somewhere? And apparently, if you play the end of Blade Runner, if they'd gone on one more frame you would have seen the Volvo from The Shining coming into shot which means that you could make a movie that starts with Blade Runner and ends up with Jack Nicholson chasing Duval around with an axe which actually would be a really good film <laughs> um, Jack I am aware of the fact that we have overrun uh, considering Oz? We never I know, that. I know, it's a, it's, it's a terrible thing. What time but, are we at? Thank you ever so much, everybody, for coming. Oh, wow, we, we have overrun. We, yeah, we have. We, we are, hang on, wait, 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 before you do that, because I'd like you to do it enthusiastically. We are very, very honoured to have been asked to come here, um, and we are delighted uh, to be part of this. We hope that everybody is having as good a time uh, as we are. As I said, if you are free tomorrow at 3 o'clock, do come and see Ben Wheatley talking about uh, In the Earth, and stay safe, everybody. Respect everybody's, you know... Everything. Respect everybody's everything. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. We really Thank you. Well, there we are. I hope you enjoyed Jack and my conversation at the Latitude Festival. On the next episode of Kermit on Film, it's me on stage at Latitude with the great Ben Wheatley. Thanks for downloading this Kermit on Film podcast. If you've enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, tell your friends, visit our Patreon page where there's loads and loads of extras. Keep watching the skies and stay safe. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.